invite you to take your Bibles this evening and turn with me to Jeremiah 48. The way of man. We continue this week reading of the judgments of God upon the Gentile nations. Chapter 46 was Egypt. Chapter 47, the Philistines. Chapter 48, God moves on to the nation of Moab. As with many of the nations on this list of judgment, Moab has a very long and storied history with the nation of Israel. The scriptures record the origins of the nations of Moab to be with the nephew of Abraham, a man named Lot. As a matter of fact, next week we're going to see uh, another nation, the nation of Ammon, and there the nation of Ammon also finds its origin with Lot. So we find the account in Genesis chapter 19. Recall that after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, from which Lot fled with his wife and two daughters, two of his daughters, his wife, looking back, it was turned into that pillar of salt. And Lot asks first if he may go to the city of Zoar. The angels tell him to flee to the mountains. He says, can I go to the city? And they say that city won't be destroyed, so that's fine. He gets to the city, and he is in great fear of the people of that city, the Bible says. So he ends up in the mountains anyway, right where the angels uh, said he should go. And so he ends up in the mountains outside of Zoar with his two daughters. These two daughters, for whatever reason, not wanting their father to go without an heir to continue his posterity, intoxicate him and lay with him. Each one conceives a child. The firstborn of his daughters has a son who is named Moab. The second or the younger daughter has a son whose name was Ammon. So the lineage of Moab goes back to common ancestry with Abraham through Lot and thus with the people of Shem. Moab is also the nation who, if you recall, contracted with the prophet Balaam, in Numbers chapters 22 and 23, asking Balaam to curse the nation of Israel. Balak, the king of Moab, asked him to do this. By the word of the Lord, Balaam tried his best but failed in his attempt to curse the nation of Israel. They would finally find a way to curse the nation by sending their women in to defile themselves with the men of Israel, at which point God's nature obligated him to curse the nation of Israel until Phinehas diverted God's judgment by stabbing through both a man and a woman, the woman being a princess in Moab with a spear. Following this, God called upon the nation to utterly destroy Moab. And they went in and did a great slaughter of the people. Balaam died in that battle as well. And so we find this history of Moab. And very early on, we see that the nation of Moab put itself on the wrong side of God and on the wrong side of God's people as it related to judgment. God decreed thus in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 through 5, that an Ammonite nor a Moabite should enter into the nation of Israel, into the congregation of Israel. They were explicitly banned from doing so, and we'll see this with the Ammonites next week, 
Because the scriptures say these nations sought to destroy Israel, did not open their hand to Israel as Israel was coming out of Egypt. Israel was in a uh, uh, materially vulnerable position. God had blessed them. God was going to take care of them. But God would have expected that uh, the nations that came from the posterity of Lot, Abraham's nephew, would have welcomed them into the land when they returned from their captivity, but instead they opposed them. Instead, they stood against them. And in standing against them, in opposing them, God said that these nations, that the people of these nations should not enter into the congregation even unto the tenth generation. Now, we also do find, however, that God is merciful. No surprise there. We find that though these nations were, if we can say, blacklisted, yet the Lord still gave grace. And so we do learn of a particular Moabitish woman who found a place of grace with the Lord and with the nation. Her name was Ruth. And she came from Moab with her mother-in-law and ended up marrying a man named Boaz. And Ruth, by virtue of her faith, by virtue of her virtue, by virtue of her constancy, was brought into the nation, redeemed by Boaz of Bethlehem, and became the great-grandmother of King David, and of course, thus in the lineage of Christ himself. Naturally, the back and forth between Israel and Moab would continue. Through the judges, there would be times where they were at war, where they were going back and forth, one against another, through the kings, bringing us to the content of the chapter today. You're there in Jeremiah 48. We'll begin in verse 1. It's a long chapter. We need to get through this evening. The Bible says this in verses 1 and 2. Against Moab, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Woe unto Nebo! For it is spoiled. Kiriathaim is confounded and taken. Misgab is confounded and dismayed. There shall no more praise. There shall be, excuse me, no more praise in Moab. And Heshbon, they have devised evil against it. Come and let us cut it off from being a nation. Also thou shalt be cut down, O madmen. The sword shall pursue thee. Chapter 48 is dedicated to a prophecy against the nation of Moab. And this is uh, the longest of any of the prophecies, of any of the um, uh, uh, negative prophecies to the Gentiles saving Babylon itself. This is the longest one. So Moab receives the most verses of judgment except for Babylon. We see here a series of woes and judgment announced right from the start against the various cities in Moab. Nebo, uh, Kiriathaim, Misgab. Nebo was a city in the plains of Moab near Mount Nebo. That would be the place where Moses, remember, overlooked the promised land before he died. Mount Nebo, also called Mount Pisgah. Kiriathaim, also a city. And then Misgab was a fortress in Moab, likely one of the strongholds of the nation. God says that Heshbon is devising evil against the nation. The announcement by God is that there shall be no more praise in Moab, that their celebrations and mirth would end. As God looks forward to that time when, Hish, when, when Heshbon is devising evil against the nation, uh, what that is is that Heshbon was right on the edge of Moab's lines, uh, country lines. And so it was six miles east of Nebo, and it would have been and ended up being the, the place where Babylon had its staging ground. 
So Babylon conquered Heshbon, and then from Heshbon, evil was surmised or, or evil was planned against the rest of the nation because that's where Babylon uh, set up its headquarters. God says that they would be cut down, calling them by the name Madmen here. Notice that Madmen is capitalized. Oh, Madmen. So this is not talking about crazy people here, right? These are not Madmen, but capital M Madmen. This is a name. So he calls them, oh, madmen. The word madmen literally means dunghill. And so the idea here is that they are a heap of refuse and they are going to be destroyed. The days of their strength will be over when God is finished with them. Verses 3 through 5, he says, A voice of crying shall be from Horanaim spoiling and great destruction. Moab is destroyed. Her little ones have caused a cry to be heard. For in the going up of Luhith, continual weeping shall go up. For in the going down of Horanaim, the enemies have heard a cry of destruction. He continues to systematically, God here, speak against the cities of the nation, mentioning Horanaim, mentioning Luhith, other cities within Moab, painting a picture of really what it is, is it's a picture of the enemy walking from city to city, destroying, ransacking, and burning as he goes. Verses 6 through 8, God says, flee, save your lives, and be like the heath in the wilderness. For because thou hast trusted in thy works and in thy treasures, thou shalt also be taken. And Chemosh shall go forth into captivity with his priests and his princes together. And the spoiler shall come upon every city, and no city shall escape. The valley also shall perish, and the plain shall be destroyed, as the Lord hath spoken. So the generalized cause of their destruction is mentioned in verse 7 here. It says, Because thou hast trusted in thy works and in thy treasures, they felt fully justified in any degree of evil because they had their strength and their wealth to fall back on. This is not uncommon. Humans are have a tendency toward this direction. Human nature, humans themselves are fickle, but human nature is not. Human nature is pretty consistent. You can bank on it pretty well. Every generation is trusted to trust, uh, is, is tempted, excuse me, to trust in their strength, tempted to trust in their treasures. Every generation is tempted to rely upon what they can see, what they can feel, upon what they can control, rather than trusting in the one who controls the very workings of the universe. The whole of the Christian life is defined, we know, by walking by faith, by being ones who, having not seen, believe. And that is in contrast to the tendency of the human nature to trust in our strength, to trust in our wealth, to trust in our riches. God rebukes the nation of Moab for this for trusting in what they have and what they can do rather than in God. See, there was a day, there was a time where they knew of the Lord. We know this because they came from Lot. And Lot was a just man, the scriptures tell us. A righteous man. But they have abandoned that for their own strength and their own treasures. To this one might say, of course they trust in themselves. They're pagans, right? But always remember, they're not pagan because God failed to make himself known to them. They're pagan because having known God, they glorified him not as God. 
when God judges the nations, when God judges the unbelievers, it will be apparent on that day that the judgment is not levied against those who had no chance to know God, but against those who, having had the chance to know God, rejected that chance. They chose instead to trust their own works, to trust their own treasures, rather than trusting in the Lord. We'll come back to that in our application this evening. Here, God begins to target the false god of Moab, a god named Chemosh. The name likely means something akin to destroyer. It's amazing how many pagan gods are gods of destruction. It it really is kind of an interesting thing. If I was making a god in my own image, I wouldn't want him to be a god that is a destroying god per se. I guess maybe against my enemies, but that has a way of finding its way of, uh, of, of coming back on people. So Chemosh means destroyer, maybe the powerful one, something like that. He was a false god. He was the false god, in fact, that Solomon imported into the nation. If you recall, Solomon's wives turned his heart away from the Lord and he began to serve a god and one of the gods, several gods in fact, but one of the gods that he imported into the nation, according to 1 Kings chapter 11 verse 7, was this god Chemosh. And in 1 Kings 11 verse 7, it's called Chemosh, the abomination of Moab. Chemosh, the abomination of Moab. And an interesting part about Chemosh as the destroyer, the powerful one, is that an integral part of worship of Chemosh was, like with many gods of the time, human sacrifice. Thus, why we see the concept of Chemosh to be so deeply abhorrent to God, not just in the false god sense, but in the fact that in their false worship, they slaughtered innocent humans. God says here that Chemosh would be taken into captivity with his princes, showing the, 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 the bankruptcy of the power of Chemosh. He has no power. He has no power to save himself or his people from captivity. It becomes clear that God wants the nation to see their judgment not only as a judgment upon them, but as a judgment upon their powerless false gods. Verses 9 and 10. Give wings unto Moab, that it may flee and get away. For the cities thereof shall be desolate without any to dwell therein. Cursed be he that doeth the work of the Lord deceitfully. And cursed be he that keepeth back his sword from blood. The statement, give wings unto Moab, is a poetic way of describing the reality of their doom. That the only way that they could possibly flee flee from the the coming doom would be if they could sprout wings and fly away. Because any direction that they run, they're going to run into their enemy. The, the, The picture is of them being surrounded by their enemy. So that there's no way, unless you could give them wings, to get away. So earnest is God for the destruction of this wicked nation. He says, Cursed be he he that doeth the work of the Lord deceitfully. Here God references the destruction of Moab as the work of the Lord. And those that he had ordained to do this work, in this case namely Babylon, were called by God to do this work with haste and to do this work with diligence. Hastily and diligently destroy this nation. And any man or woman who would hold back from God's decree, who would do God's decree, the work of the Lord deceitfully, or who would, be not, who would not be diligent in doing the work of the Lord, God says that one will be cursed. That one will be cursed who keeps back his sword from blood. No mercy for Moab. That's the idea. Verses 11 and 12. Moab hath been set at ease from his youth. 
and he hath settled on his lees, and hath not been emptied from vessel to vessel. Neither hath he gone into captivity, therefore his taste sh- remained in him, and his scent is not changed. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will send unto him wanderers that shall cause him to wander and shall empty his vessels and break their bottles. God uses, this is an illustration that God is using here. He uses the illustration, in fact, of fermenting wine. God describes Moaz as having been at ease from his youth, from the early days. From the early days of the nation, they've always been at ease. They've not feared the Lord. They have not checked themselves. They have not governed themselves. They've not judged themselves. They've been apathetic toward the Lord. That the, the picture here, they have settled upon their lees. Lees is the sediment from wine that is formed during the fermentation process. And if you leave that sediment, the lees, on top of the wine as it ferments, it heightens, hastens, and strengthens the fermentation process. So the idea of them settling upon their lees is that they have not had the fear of God before their eyes, and they became very comfortable in their evil, and rather than when they saw perhaps at least a certain threshold of evil, they stopped and looked and said, these lees, this is a problem here, and scraped it away so that they could come back from the process of, of, of becoming more and more evil. Instead of doing that, they became comfortable. They settled in their lease. They've not maintained a spirit of personal correction, illustrated by being emptied from vessel to vessel. This is what he says here. And hath not been emptied from vessel to vessel. The process of moving from vessel to vessel, of turning things up, it would slow down that process of fermentation. Instead, he says, you've not been moved from vessel to vessel. You've not maintained a spirit of correction. And you haven't gone into captivity yet, right? Neither has he gone into captivity. So the taste remains in you. You've not gone into captivity. You've not judged yourself, which means you still have this evil and it needs to be dealt with. And this evil is now what God is declaring he will purge. So he says he'll send them wanderers, conquerors. And they would cause Moab to wander. Those who were charged with the task of causing Moab to wander. And then he finishes up the illustration here. And shall empty his vessels and break the bottles. They will pour out that fermented wine, right? They will pour out their, the, them with their evil onto the ground and break their vessels so that they will be no more. That's the illustration that we see here. Verses 13 through 15. And Moab shall be ashamed of Chemosh, as the house of Israel was ashamed of Bethel, their confidence. How say ye we are mighty and strong men for the war? Moab is spoiled and gone out of her cities, and his chosen young men are gone down to the slaughter, saith the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. In that day, God says, Moab will be ashamed of Chemosh in the same way that Israel was ashamed of Bethel. Remember what Bethel represents. uh, um, Excuse me, Jeroboam, right? In the days of the divided kingdom. Jeroboam takes the northern ten tribes. Rehoboam gets the southern two tribes after the split uh, in the days of Rehoboam, just after Solomon dies. 
and Jeroboam because he did not want the people in those northern ten tribes of Israel to go down and worship at the temple because he says if they go down and worship on the temple, they'll remember the bond and the unity that there is between Judah and Israel and they'll want to reunite. And Jeroboam had assumed a carnal mind and did not want them to reunite. So instead he erected a golden calf in Bethel and one in Dan, the north end in Dan, the southern end in Bethel, And he said, these be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee out of Egypt. And it created this false hybrid worship system through this golden calf. And God says, in the same way that Israel was ashamed of Bethel in the days just before they were brought into captivity, so too will Moab be when they are brought into captivity ashamed of Chemosh. And then God asks, how can you say that you are mighty? How can you say that you're strong men when Moab is spoiled and the people are killed? And then notice what God does in verse 15. He does the same thing here that he did with Egypt. He says, he calls himself the king. He states, uh, Moab is spoiled and gone out of her cities and his chosen young men are gone down to the slaughter, saith the king whose name is the Lord of hosts. So once again, just as he did with Egypt in chapter 46, verse 15, so he does with Moab, he reminds them that he's the king, that he's the one in charge, that he commands history. We continue in verses 16 through 18. The calamity of Moab is near to come, and his affliction hasteth fast. All ye that are about him bemoan him, and all ye that know his name say, How is the strong staff broken and the beautiful rod? Thou daughter that dost inhabit Dibon, come down from thy glory and sit in thirst, for the spoiler of Moab shall come upon thee, and he shall destroy thy strongholds. God announces that these judgments are near and are approaching with haste. We always take such warnings relatively, right? Because God speaks of haste by his timetable, not our timetable. Remember, Jesus said, surely I come quickly in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And to this day, we await that sure return. Does this mean that Jesus lied or that he did not come quickly when he says he would? Well, no, it does not. Peter explains this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. He says, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So Christ is coming soon and indeed his return is imminent, but God does not function on our timetable. God does not see history the same way we see history. To this end, Peter says, a thousand years with the Lord is as a day and a day is as but is is as a thousand years. This delay as we see it in our timetable is not but a blink of an eye to the Lord. It's only been 2,000 years since the writing of these words. And so, as God's timetable is not our timetable, and as God looks at the scope of history, He sees these things with haste coming. He say, well, why would the Lord delay at all? Well, what Peter says here 
is that the reason why God would delay it all is not because he's slack with his promises. It's not because he's negligent. It's not because he is even, in fact, delaying, but rather he is showing mercy because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. From the divine perspective, this in no way is a contradiction that there could be 2,000 years since this promise, and yet Christ says, I come quickly. So we see this idea here, and God tells them that there will be a hasty destruction upon them. And so it will be that the calamity of Moab is near to come. God wants them to know that their judgment is coming, it is prepared, and it will not divert. So he calls for Moab to mourn. And those around Moab to mourn because the nation was strong. How is the strong staff broken and the beautiful rod? A rod being a picture of power, a staff being a picture of power. They are broken. He says, mourn, bemoan him. As with Egypt, God calls the daughters of the nation to prepare herself for sorrow because even the strongholds of the nation will be torn down. Verses 19 through 24. O inhabitants of Aror, stand by the way and espy. Ask him that fleeth, and her that escapeth, and say, What is done? Moab is confounded, for it is broken down. Howl and cry. Tell ye it in Arnon, that Moab is spoiled, and judgment is come upon the plain country, upon Halon, upon Jehaza, upon, and upon Mephaath. And upon Divan, and upon Nebo, and upon Beth Diblathaim, and upon Kiriathaim, and upon Beth Gamul, and upon Bethmeon, and upon Kerioth, and upon Basra, and upon all the cities of the land of Moab, far or near. So God lists these various cities, both far and near, and declares judgment upon them. Continuing verses 25 through 27. The horn of Moab is cut off and his arm is broken, saith the Lord. Make ye him drunken, for he magnified himself against the Lord. Moab also shall wallow in his vomit, and he, shall, uh, and he also shall be in derision. For was not Israel a derision unto thee? Was he found among thieves? For since thou spakest of him, thou skippest for joy. In the scriptures, horns were a symbol of strength as they would be on any animal with horns. The horns of the animal is the strength of that animal. Much the same way, a horn is that symbol of strength. So the horn of Moab is cut off. The strength of Moab is cut off. Uh, same picture with the arm. The arm would be the strength of a man. That strength is broken. That arm is broken. And God says to the agent of his judgment, that would be here to Babylon, make him drunken. Th this may mean just to shame him as a drunken man is shamed, or it may be to cause him to drink fullness of the wrath of God. The idea of let him drink to the fullness my wrath through your destruction. Either way, it's not a good thing for Moab, right? And God says, make him drunken because he magnified himself against the Lord. So this drunken, shameful Moab, this one who has drunken the fullness of God's wrath, God likens him then to be sitting in a puddle, uh, Moab, to be sitting in a puddle of his own vomit. A graphic picture which is certainly not uncommon among heavy alcoholics. 
And so the nation would be in derision. It would be in shame. It would be sitting in a puddle of its own shame before the world. And God says the reason why, notice it says here, for was not Israel a derision unto thee? Was he found among thieves? For since thou spakest of him, thou skippest for joy. This speaks of the fact that the scriptures record that when Israel was brought into captivity, Moab partnered with Babylon to see Israel fall, Judah specifically, fall. And not only that, but they rejoiced at Judah's fall. And God took this very, very personally. We'll see the same thing with Ammon, and we'll see the same thing particularly with Edom. If you read the book of Obadiah, Obadiah is written against Edom, and it is written particularly against Edom because of their rejoicing at the fall of Judah. That is the same idea here. Wasn't Israel a division to you, Moab? Well, now you'll be a derision to the world yourself. And that's that picture. That is that idea. And at this point, it's worth remembering that the judgment of Moab is, just, is not just a ju- judgment of their general sin, but specifically about God avenging Israel for the wrongs done against her, avenging Judah. Verses 28 and 29, uh, through 30, excuse me. O ye that dwell in Moab, leave the cities and dwell in the rock and be like the dove that maketh her nest in the sides of the hole's mouth. We have heard the pride of Moab. He is exceeding proud, his loftiness and his arrogancy and his pride and the haughtiness of his heart. I know his wrath, saith the Lord, but it shall not be so. His lies shall not so affect it. God calls for those in Moab with any wisdom to flee from the cities and to dwell on the rocks like wild doves would make her home in the cliffs. And that because the pride of Moab is about to bring the nation low. And God says, I know her wrath, uh, his wrath, excuse me. Speaking of the passion of Moab for his own way, the rebellious nature of his heart, the evil in him rejoicing over Israel's demise. But God says, I promise Moab will be humbled and no amount of lies about her own condition, no amount of lifting herself up in pride and saying that she is not what she is, which is a nation cursed of the Lord, will change what is about to happen to her. Verses 31 through 34. Therefore God says, Will I howl for Moab? I will cry out for all Moab. Mine heart shall mourn for the men of Kirerez. O vine of Sibma, I will weep for thee with the weeping of Jadzer. Thy plants are gone over the sea. They reach even to the sea of Jazer. The spoil is fallen upon thy summer fruits and upon thy vintage. And joy and gladness is taken from the plentiful field and from the land of Moab. And I have caused wine to fail from the wine presses. None shall tread with shouting. Their shouting shall be no shouting. From the cry of Heshbon, even unto Elele, Elela, excuse me, and even unto Jahaz, have they uttered their voice from Zoar even unto Horanaim, as an heifer of three years old. For the waters also of Nimrim shall be desolate. We find in these verses a lamentation. This is not uncommon among prophecies of judgment, even for the Gentile lands, that the prophet will, will break into a spontaneous lamentation. Um, at this, 
idea, it might seem a little bit strange to us. At the beginning of the book, Jeremiah is begging God to destroy these people that are ignoring him. And now we read of these lamentations. But it is important to remember. And perhaps, and I hope that we can relate to this as well. That while there is some matter of true justice in the reality of judgment, the judgment of the Lord should be wished on no man. The lake of fire should be wished on no man. And when one comes face to face with the tremendous judgment, in theory, there might be some comfort in the idea of our enemies being judged, but in practice... There is really no comfort in such things. In practice, it is a tremendously sorrowful thing that there should be judgment. See, we read just a few moments ago in 2 Peter 3 that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Don't misunderstand God's passion for righteousness and God's tremendous holiness for cruelty for some desire to actually see the lost judged. God does not ultimately take pleasure in the death of the wicked, in the judgment of the wicked. It exalts His holiness. It's consistent with His character. It's consistent with justice. But it does not please God that men must perish. So God says that He will weep for the beauty that was Moab. Remember, they were the descendants of Lot, righteous man, spared the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah weeping for the desolation that would come upon this once beautiful land, the natural consequence of the outcome of their sin and rebellion against God, the natural outcome of their determination to glory in the destruction of Judah, called the apple of God's eye. Continuing in verses 35 through 39. Moreover, I will cause to cease in Moab, saith the Lord, him that offereth in the high places and him that burneth incense to his gods. Therefore, mine heart shall sound for Moab like pipes and mine heart shall sound like pipes for the men of Kirarez because the riches that he hath gotten are perished. For every head shall be bald and every beard clipped upon all the hands shall be cuttings and upon the loin sackcloth. There shall be lamentation generally upon all the housetops of Moab and in the streets thereof. For I have broken Moab like a vessel wherein is no pleasure, saith the Lord. They shall howl, saying, How is it broken down? How hath Moab turned the back with shame? So shall Moab be a derision and a dismaying to all them about him. God says he will take away all the idolaters from the land and so his heart will sound for Moab like pipes. A song again of lamentation for their shame. A song of lamentation from the heart of God for their refusal to repent. God says every head shall be bald, every beard clipped, cuts on hands, sackcloth on the loins. All of these signs of mourning, of course the, the cuts on the hands is a particularly pagan sign of mourning. Something Israel was not allowed to do was to cut themselves. Um, but the other signs of mourning are very characteristic. The shaving of the head, the clipping of the beard, um, the sackcloth on the loins. Lamentation upon the housetops, lamentation in the streets. Because Moab will be broken, they will be a derision and a shame. Verses 40 through 42. For thus 
saith the Lord, Behold, he shall fly as an eagle and shall spread his wings over Moab. Carrioth is taken, and the strongholds are surprised. And the mighty men's hearts in Moab at that day shall be as the heart of a woman in her pangs. And Moab shall be destroyed from being a people because he hath magnified himself against the Lord. The Lord speaks of Babylon here. It is not uncommon to see Babylon as an eagle in, in any, any measure of prophecies. In fact, as we see the vision in Daniel of Babylon, it was a lion with eagle's wings. As we see a vision in uh, Ezekiel of Zedekiah in Babylon, it was the eagle that planted Zedekiah in the land and that eagle being Babylon. So this idea of eagles and Babylon, it's a very consistent prophetic uh, um, idea. And so Nebuchadnezzar is that eagle that will spread his wings over Moab that will take its strongholds. And on that day when he comes to Moab, Moab will be destroyed from being a people as we have seen throughout this chapter because she magnified herself against the Lord. Once again, we see that idea. She trusted in her strength. She trusted in her treasures. She magnified herself against the Lord. Verses 43 through 45. Fear and the pit and the snare shall be upon thee, O inhabitant of Moab, saith the Lord. He that fleeth from the fear shall fall into the pit, and he that getteth up out of the pit shall be taken in the snare. For I will bring upon it, even upon Moab, the year of their visitation, saith the Lord. They that fled stood under the shadow of Heshbon because of the force. But a fire shall come forth out of Heshbon, and a flame from the midst of Zion, and shall devour the corner of Moab and the crown of the head of the tumultuous ones. God proclaims a multifaceted judgment. Uh, remember this with Judah. God proclaimed a threefold judgment upon Judah, right? The sword, the pestilence, and the famine. And those were the three, that was the threefold judgment. Three is a very common number for things like that in Hebrew writing. And so this threefold judgment meant that if you escaped one, you, you would get the other. And if you escaped both of those, you'd get the third. It was this idea of complete judgment. And we see the same threefold idea here as it relates to the judgment upon Moab. That there would be a pit, there would be a snare. Those that would run from death would fall into the pit. Those that would get out of the pit would be caught in the snare. God says the people will stand in the shadow of Heshbon and then a fire will come out of it to devour the corners of Moab. Remember at the beginning of this chapter, Heshbon was going to be that staging ground that, that through which they would, the, the kingdom of Babylon would, would ch uh, plan their, their destruction of the rest of Moab. That flame thus would come out of Moab and would, or excuse me, out of Heshbon and consume Moab, indicating that the land would be burned as Babylon moves through it, destroying piece by piece. Similar to what we saw in Judah. Similar to what we saw with Egypt. Verses 46 and 47. This is the last two verses of the chapter. Woe be unto thee, O Moab. The people of Chemosh perisheth, for thy sons are taken captive and thy daughters captives. Yet will I bring again the captivity of Moab in the latter days, saith the Lord. Thus far is the judgment of Moab. We read this final woe, that the people of Chemosh, that's their false god, right, would perish and the sons would be taken captive. But notice this, unlike Egypt, where God says they would be utterly wiped out, God does not say that to Moab. 
He says, in the latter days, Moab would bring again their captivity. Hints of this appear elsewhere in prophecy as well. The connection of Moab to the Shemites brings about a natural mercy. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 41, speaking of the nations that would escape from the hand of Antichrist, we find Moab, Ammon, and Edom. So what we will expect as we look in these prophecies of the latter days, these prophecies where God would bring them back from their captivity, we should expect that Moab this week, Ammon and Edom next week, should all have some measure of mercy prescribed to them. And indeed, what we would expect from prophecy is what we'll find in prophecy. That these three nations, because of their unique connection to Abraham and to the blessed line of Shem, will find a manner of mercy, a measure of mercy with the Lord. And, of course, even in judgment, we would expect that with God. Now, that's it for our exposition. There's a lot of verses to get through. I got through them a little bit quickly. I was running through them um, because I wanted to get to our, our, our application today. There's a few uh, ways that we could go. We talked for a moment about Moab and how they, they settled in their lees, right? And they did not have that spirit of correction among them. And I thought about bringing that in, that, that exhortation to us this evening, the question, and I would ask it of you, though it won't be the primary focus of our application, but the question, do you have that spirit of correction in yourself? Or have you settled? Have you settled upon your lees? Have you become comfortable with some measure of sin? Perhaps you've not seen the consequences of that sin. Perhaps you feel as though there aren't any to be spoken of, and yet what we know is that we reap what we sow. Have you settled upon your lees? Have you become comfortable in, judge, uh, in, in your sin? Or do you have that spirit of correction whereby you're regularly being poured from pot to pot? The, the, the water of your life or the wine of your life is being churned up so that there is a constant freshness about it not getting stale, not getting comfortable? Do you have that spirit of correction? But I'd like to go in a different way as we think of Moab. The focus is Moab. And as we saw these, the testimony of Moab, there were several verses that kind of bubbled up to the top. Verse 7 spoke of them trusting in their works and in their treasures. Verse 11 Speaking of them, as we just said, settling on their lees, not being emptied from vessel to vessel, uh, knowing what they needed to do, but refusing to do it. No, seeing the evidences of their evil, but not at any point repenting. And we saw it as well in verse 29. The pride of Moab, his loftiness and his arrogancy and his pride and his haughtiness. And as I studied this chapter and I read these verses, the thing that kept coming to mind again and again and again is Romans chapter 1. And that teaching in Romans chapter 1 about the common tendency of mankind as it relates to God revealing Himself to them and their response 
to him. In Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, the Bible says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things." As Paul speaks of the unbelieving world here, he states that the wrath of God is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Those who hold, and that word hold there, holding the truth and unrighteousness, literally means to hold down or to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And it becomes immediately apparent, just as God accused Moab, if we want to say it that way in this chapter, it becomes immediately apparent that the unrighteous man is not unrighteous because he cannot know what is true but because he is suppressing what is true in his own heart and in this world. Seeing the testimony of the truth that is evidenced in this world, he ignores it, he suppresses it, he holds it down that he might persist in darkness. Now, as I say that, let me be clear. I'm not stating that from a natural perspective, every unbeliever is knowingly and willingly shaking his fist at God, going home and saying just how much they hate God, and, go, and, and going about to knowingly suppress the truth. But from a spiritual perspective, this is the reality of what's happening. That as they look around them at the heavens which declare the glory of God, and they walk back into their world of sin, they are holding the truth in unrighteousness. They are suppressing the truth of what is evident all around them. Because what we can know from scriptures is that at a root level, every man has seen the truth of God, his existence and his righteousness. The invisible things of God are clearly seen from the world that is made. Even not just his his existence, but his eternal power and Godhead. The power of God and the authority of God are known to every man that walks this earth so that every man is without excuse. And naturally, this is troubling to mankind who are often tempted by power and by authority. Excuse me, I don't want to be there yet. Uh, They are not interested in submitting themselves to the eternal power and Godhead of the Lord. And so to whatever degree this glimmer of truth pierces their darkness and exposes their shame, they, knowing God, glorify Him not as God, but become vain, empty, in their own imaginations, in their own deceits. They concoct elaborate theories, elaborate upon empty philosophies. It is amazing, as you walk through history, how many of these empty worldly philosophies come as close as they can to touching on the divine before insisting that He doesn't exist. It's amazing how close science can get to touching on the divine 
without acknowledging his existence. Science is in a critical place today where they, they understand full well Darwinian evolution is bankrupt. They know it, but they can't admit it because if they admit it, then they have to admit design. They have to admit a creator. And until all of their other grandiose theories of multiverses and intelligent designers and alien seeds and all those things, until any of that can come to fruition and can, 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 they can make it sound scientific enough, they have to stick to this bankrupt theory. And professing themselves to be wise, professing their own capacity to live without God, their own ability to disprove God, they drift further and further into the depths of foolishness, deeper and deeper. And they begin to replace the true and living God who is sufficient for every need, who loves them, who offers them freedom through submission. They, <coughs> excuse me, they begin to replace him with foolish objects, just as Moab did. So they replace a God who loves them and who desires to give them mercy with a God who demands human sacrifice in Moab. They replace Jehovah with Chemosh. This is not a good replacement, but you know what? It's a replacement that they can concoct in their own image. It is something that they can get a hold on. It is something that they can put into the little box of their existence and still claim some power and some authority over this deity of theirs, some control over this deity of theirs. So they'll give this false deity human sacrifice if only it means not having to submit to the authority of the true and living God. And so mankind will replace the true and living God with nature. It used to be that they would actually carve something out of a tree. Now they just worship the trees as they stand. With government, it used to be that the kings had to call themselves gods. The divine right of kings. Caesar, who is also God. Pharaoh, who is also God. Now they don't even need that. People will worship government without even that veneer of religion. Fellow man. It used to be a man used to have to try to prove some sort of false divine connection in order to be worshipped. Now you just have to become a star in Hollywood or sell a record label and you'll be worshipped. And they subject themselves to the whims of these make-believe gods, these idols, and then they proclaim this foolishness to be their wisdom. And they proclaim the truth to be a lie. This is the same thing that Moab did. Because they didn't stir themselves up. Because they did not have a spirit of self-correction within them. And so they fell deep into this error. So they hurtled into what we call today humanism. And this is what we see. They replaced the true and living God with a stone named Chemosh. Replaced a God who wanted them to live for a God who asked for them to die. Replaced a God of mercy with a God whose name literally means destruction. And they bound themselves to this inferior God because at least they could raise this God up in their own image. At least their God could be manipulated. At least their God would allow them to pursue the lusts of their flesh without consequences. And this is exactly what we see today as well. 
And just as then, so too today, the false gods of our current society, be it government or celebrity or environment or wealth, these false gods have their demands. These false gods are angry gods. People live bound by the demands of these angry gods, afraid to counter them, and then they call it freedom. While the true and living God calls out to them, if the Son of God shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. All the while, while they live in bondage to these gods of their own making, they deny, they mock, they marginalize the God who created them who loves them and who is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. And just as with them in that day, just as the heart of God sang the lamentation, so too the heart of God sings the lamentation for those who are hurtling toward a sinner's hell. And so too should our hearts lament for those who know not the truth, who are in this place of self-deception. And as we see with Moab, such actions, such false paganism cannot exist without inevitable consequences, both physically and spiritually. Romans continues to speak about these consequences. Verse 24, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. If we're not in a self-correcting pattern, being renewed day by day by the Spirit of God, being renewed by our understanding of the Word of God, living in that life of repentance, we fall into an ever-descending pit of moral depravity accelerated by our own insistence of our right above God. Of course, this is particularly obvious in the nature of the unbelieving world. As they know God, but glorify Him not as God, but become vain in their own imaginations and their foolish hearts are darkened, they are convinced of the fact that the God of all flesh neither sees nor knows nor cares what they are doing. And one of the telltale signs of every godless and depraved nation is open and unashamed sexual perversion. Particularly, as mentioned in Romans 1 here, the sin of sodomy. It's an important concept to understand today that historically, 
these great sexual perversions have been the norm in most cultures, not the exception. There's this lie going around today that sodomy and pedophilia and those things which are becoming mainstream, these sexual perversions, uh, that, that somehow uh, they have been an oppressed people throughout history. When in fact, it's been very mainstream in most pagan cultures throughout history. You can find it in ancient Chinese culture. You can find it in ancient Egyptian culture. You can find it uh, east, west, north, south. You can find record of these sexual perversions. We, in fact, have a uniquely different path in this Western world since the time of the Reformation, where we have seen these for what they are, sexual perversions, because we've seen them in the light of God's Word. So they were driven to the darkest recesses of our culture where they were not allowed out until recently. And as these perversions become mainstream again, we see in them one of the clearest evidences of the condition of our culture and society in relation to God. That what began with taking prayer out of schools, that what began with taking Bibles out of schools, has now accelerated to an overt and abject denial of God's existence. And this will bring with it, as it did in the last days of Moab, grave consequences. And so we find a list of virtues of a society, of, of, of anti-virtues, of the society that has rejected the true and living God. Fornication and wickedness and covetousness and maliciousness, envy and murder and debate and deceit, malignity that speaks of malice and poor character, whisperers and backbiters and haters of God, despiteful. The idea of despitefulness is, is someone who is an insulter, uh, who treats others with, with a natural disrespect. Think Twitter, basically. And you've got what a, what, what a despiteful person is. Uh, 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 not even just Twitter. Think social media. And the, 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 the vast amounts of disrespect that go around in social media, that's the idea. Proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, that word meaning hard-hearted, unmerciful. And here it is. This is the condition that Moab was in when God judged them. A condition where they not only, knowing the judgment of God, not only committed these things, but took pleasure in the commission of them and took pleasure in those that commit them. When society sees sin as their badge of honor, that society is in a bad, bad place. This is the exact language that we find as the source of Moab's judgment in Jeremiah 48. They were proud, they were haughty, they were depraved. And as God described it, they rested in their lees. They continued to ferment. They not only did these abominations, they took pleasure in them. They did it loudly and proudly. They did not have a spirit of repentance, a spirit of, uh, of, of renewal about them. And this is a cause for us to engage in that self-contemplation. We know full well the, the perversion of our society. We know full well the, the nature of our society and, and it's, it's hurtling toward depravity and destruction. But let us also be careful because the tremendous evils of society can take we who believe in one of two directions. Either the church will shine brighter out of the darkness as the, the, the society hurtles deeper and deeper 
or the church will dim with the world. If the church doesn't move and the world is moving this way, then the world will be constantly moving farther from the church, right? But what we need to be careful is that we don't settle upon our own lease and see this happen. That as the world moves, the church stays at the distance it's supposed to from the world. But the world's not getting farther away. If you don't see the world getting farther away when you see what's happening around us, there's something wrong with the church. If in your family you don't see the world getting farther away as the society around you hurdles into deep, deep perversion, you need to check yourself as it relates to the standards of your family. Are your standards, are your determinations shifting with the world? And you say, well, the world is just as far away as it ever was. Well, yeah, but the problem is the world has moved so much. If it's only as far away as it ever was, if, if the church is just as far away from the world today as it was in the 1930s and 40s, then there's something wrong with the church because the culture has degraded so heavily. The church and the world should be so far away now they can hardly see each other. <laughs> the church and the culture. That was once Israel in the midst of the nations around them. They were a light on a hill and then they began to compromise on the fringes and soon there was no difference between them and the nations that were around them. And so it's a call for us not to settle upon our own lees. Perhaps we cannot countenance a day where anyone in this room would get to the point where we would uh, accept or, or, uh, or be comfortable around the sexual perversions that God sees as an abomination, unlike much of the church today. But what about your own life? Are you living in that natural cycle, that cycle of renewal, that cycle of repentance, gauging where you are and where you need to be, constantly renewing, constantly reviving, constantly repenting, or have you become comfortable? Have you allowed some things into your life that don't need to be there? Let us again take personal inventory. Let us consider ourselves. These judgments upon Moab are not just to bring us to the prophecy of their eventual renewal, though that, that is certainly there. And we need that prophetically. But it's there for our learning to remind us about what happens when a nation who once knew the Lord begins to fall down a path of getting comfortable, of trusting in themselves, their strength, their treasures, their abilities, the status quo. And it brought them to a place where before they knew it, they were in line for inevitable judgment. May God preserve us from such a fate so that we might be that light on the hill calling the culture out of darkness and into Christ's light. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.